Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about truth or consequences. Consequences as in, what should we do when Christians tell lies? I'm not referring here, of course, to the you know, basic human failing. All of us get things wrong from time to time, and all of us have defense mechanisms and rationalizations that lead us to tell little white lies or paint the truth in the most positive light for us. I'm talking about genuine, full-on teleology, ends versus the means approach. And what do we do when, when there are people who claim to be people of the truth? One of the definitions of the early church, one of the ways the early church identified itself was people of the truth. What do we do when those folks lie intentionally or incredibly negligently because they think that telling those kinds of lies will serve their long-term political ends? I put a large post up, actually a post as a page on the website at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. So it won't look like it's a post on the website with all the podcast entries. Instead, where the uh, tab is for the about uh, entry, what the show's about, there's one next to it now called Christianity. It's actually called Christianity 201, but the uh, abbreviated title is Christianity. It's one of the longest posts I've ever put up. Um, one of the longest things I've ever written, if you include in the word count all of the scripture references. And it tells, from my perspective, my response to Christian anti-intellectualism. It is one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem, facing the Protestant Christian church today, and uh, it's easily just as big an issue, if not bigger, for Catholicism. So some of that was a response to the emails that I get. Uh, again, I'm, I'm a political moderate. I walk the middle path. I have friends who are Christian. I have friends who are atheist, and I get a lot of communication from all angles because of that. It makes life entertaining. I'm not complaining. But every now and then I will get a post or an email or a, a link that drives me incredibly nuts. And I'd like to cite just three really quickly uh, to give you a sense of kind of where my passion is coming from here on this issue of telling the truth. One of them is a uh, Facebook post I saw. In fact, this uh, angered me enough that I changed my release schedule, took a week off, and bumped a show that I was going to use to praise some people who I've you know, shared some interfaith ministry with because it's going to take me a little longer to get over some of the really hateful politics that I've heard from some of my friends who are part of that group. So I'm going to need to, you know, chill a little bit. But this post was one of those uh, billboards. I think you probably have seen it on an American roadside before. It says something about a, a little kid writing a letter. You know, dear God, why is there all this violence and, and hatred in schools and so forth and so on? And on the billboard, God's answer is, can't help you. I'm not allowed in schools. Well, that's absolute, complete nonsense. Children have been allowed to pray in schools my entire lifetime and probably for the full 200 years prior to that. And um, the president of the United States uh, in the 90s, Bill Clinton, passed an executive order, which I believe was the last official proclamation from courts, administrative branch or legislature on this issue. And what it said was teachers, school administrators, principals, counselors are absolutely forbidden under any circumstances for interfering with a child's right to pray. The difference is, of course, this billboard, assuming that God's not allowed in schools, was saying God's not allowed in schools because God's not allowed there indoctrinationally, and that something about the teacher not being able to impose their religious beliefs on a classroom full of kids is offensive to God. Well, as we've covered before on the prayer and school issues here on Inappropriate Conversations, uh, Jesus himself has shared very different words with the world and with the church on the question of public-led prayer, especially when that prayer is serving the purpose of making us all feel good about how moral and Christian we are. Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, is the key verse in that uh, in that sh those chapters in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 that gives you a real sense of his passion for the issue and how important it is that prayer be real. There's an old saying that says you can always tell 
the character the quality of one's character because their character is who they are when no one is watching what are your faiths what are your beliefs what are your standards what are your morals what are your ethics when you are 100% convinced that no one can see what you're doing Jesus calls for that kind of prayer in school not the song and dance I got another one in fact on this very issue because in the two-part prayer in school, inappropriate conversations, number 29 and 30, I believe, one was called Establishment of Religion, but the first part was called My Prayer for a Football Game or Commencement. And in that you know, particular show, I read an email that I received in 2003 from someone who was complaining about prayers and uh, public events and football games and prayers over the PA, in other words. And I got that exact same email this week with a different author's name attached. Now, this is celebrity authorship, right? So these words have been ascribed to Ben Stein and Andy Rooney and someone else named Sam Thompson. I have seen this same essay almost word for word, and by almost, I mean 99% word for word, ascribed to three different authors and sent out by Christians to other Christians as a call to action that we're sick and tired of turning the other cheek. That sort of rhetoric in this particular email and I just want to use that as an intro here to talk about what's wrong with the honesty of Christians today, because it is not possible that that email could have multiple ascribed authorship. So one or more or all of those emails was telling a lie from the perspective of whose ideas these even are. And there's something incredibly wrong with that. I sent an email back to this one, replied to everybody who received it, because I basically said, I think I know I've gotten this before with a different author's name. I'm sure you guys have too. This has to be a lie, right? It might be a little white lie. It might be an innocent confusion, but it has to be untrue. And who does the Bible tell us is the father of all lies? You're doing Satan's work, Christians. You're not doing Jesus's work when you tell these kinds of lies. Well, some of them are just Confusing misdirections, misinterpretations. It's probably harsh to point to somebody and use the word liar attached to them, but it doesn't make the actions any less wrong. I got another one, which was a, a video display of just a really moving, if you're a Christian, a set of uh, large-scale stone and metal um, sculpture done kind of in the middle of the Texas panhandle, a Route 66 display, and it might be visible from the highway. I haven't been there. Uh, this has been erected since the last time I was in that part of Texas. But the comment came back that this could be one of the last surviving Christian symbols in our country. We as Christians are under attack. We've been marginalized. We've got to respond. When I get to the different drummer, I'm going to talk about this particular kind of anti-intellectualism in a little more detail and let an evangelical Christian thinker agree with me that this is uh, ridiculous and harmful and a negative approach from Christians. But this one I did answer because the whole gist of it was some farmers had donated land, some artists donated their time, other people, not the government, raised money so that this display could be put on private property but private property in a way that it would be very visible to tourists and people passing by. So here's what I said. Homes and churches and field all over this country include Christian symbols on a regular basis and not just at Christmas time. Right now, the Ground Zero site in New York City has included Christian symbols among its memorials, including ones that spent a decade touring public parks and fire stations all over the country. Now, to be fair, some people use this terminology to express disdain over the relative lack of Christian symbols being used inside the halls of government. I still disagree with his observation, though, for two reasons. First, every time you hear about a lawsuit or whispers of a legal challenge over Christian symbolism on the public square, it is because the displays are on the public square. If they weren't on public property, they wouldn't be generating divisive conflict. So the symbols are there. Else no conflict. Second, this display, the one that I saw in this email, it isn't inside the mayor's office. It's not in front of the courthouse. It's not in, in the you know, lobby of the Board of Education. So this display doesn't count, right? It isn't one of the last surviving Christian symbols in our country because it only counts if it's on public property, right? This one's not. It's on private property. This is a Christian symbol on display in our country. That's my opinion. And it's a blessing because it also reminds us that true Christianity does not seek 
the blessing of rulers and principalities. We aren't in trouble when our government no longer endorses our religion at the expense of all other beliefs, false or otherwise. We're in trouble when our believers become unwilling to share their faith or give their own resources without the government's blessing. My prayer is that believers, like the artists and landowners who donated property and resources, will prove to be just one of many examples of Christians who respect and understand what the book of Romans says, particularly chapter 13, and stay determined to show that the faithful and not elected officials should bear the likeness of Christ and share his gospel with the world. Our country will look very different on that day. So, what do we do with the people who are either so confused about what it means to talk about our country, can't distinguish between public and private property, or choose not to, because by intentionally obfuscating the relationship between public and private property, they can make an argument that they're somehow an embattled minority. An embattled minority, by the way, that made The Passion of the Christ one of the highest grossing independent films of all time. That's one heck of an embattled minority. Big Brother? No. Survivor? No. The Office? Angela, then what do we talk about? Gaming, sci-fi, fantasy, and geek stuff. Really? Yes. Cool. (laughs) I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And you need to listen to the Anomaly Podcast, where female and fandom converge. Find us online at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. What I really want to talk about instead, though, is a return here to the issue of abortion, and not from the perspective of abortion itself, but the dialogue and the argument surrounding it, because this is one of the key areas where I don't think that any side of this issue is particularly honest with itself and therefore with others. I actually got a little bit excited, maybe uh, energized is a better word, a few years ago when I encountered a uh, website called Stand to Reason may actually just be abbreviated to str.org. It doesn't matter what it's called because I'm not going to recommend that you go there. I was happy with this because it seemed to be the first time that I had seen in this issue someone trying to make logical, reason, rational arguments about abortion one way or the other, in this case, anti-abortion, and doing so without the pictures of botched abortions, without the hyperbole and rhetoric. The whole goal of the of the uh, website was to make reasoned, intelligent, defensible responses for you know, what they would describe as the Christian worldview. I don't like this being described as a Christian worldview because I don't believe that the Christian worldview can be pigeonholed into a pro-life perspective. I think this issue is far more complex than anyone really gives it credit for, and none more clear than the whole notion of, of anti-abortion politics somehow being a Christian worldview. But Greg Kokel is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, and Part of the reason I was encouraged was I'd, I'd heard interviews with him. I'd seen some of these materials discussed, at least theoretically. He doesn't come to it from an anti-intellectual perspective. Uh, his bio on the website says that he received his master's in philosophy of religion and ethics at Talbot School of Theology, graduating with high honors, and his master's in Christian apologetics from the Simon Greenleaf University. So this is someone who has at least been educated, perhaps educated in too narrow of a way. We'll see, but educated. And I want to share with you his point of view on the article by Judith Jarvis Thompson. Now, I've uh, just to do a couple of callbacks. I've mentioned Judith Jarvis Thompson before. She is the different drummer that I mentioned on Inappropriate Conversations 36 uh, with questions about misconceptions over abortion. And obviously, she played an active role in the two-parter that I did here recently, 59 and 60, on 10 areas of agreement about abortion. I'm very familiar with the writing of Judith Jarvis Thompson, and I encourage everyone else to at least familiarize yourself with these arguments. Greg Kokel would agree, and I'm going to share elements of his online article called Unstringing the Violinist, which confirms that at the very least, he's taking Judith Jarvis Thompson's arguments seriously, if only as a serious threat. Here are the words of Kokel. I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument. 
I was driving south on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles listening to a talk radio show. It shook me up so much I almost pulled over. Not only was the argument compelling, but Thompson made a stunning concession when she acknowledged the full personhood of the unborn. Having conceded what pro-lifers were trying to prove, she short-circuited their argument from the outset. My first impulse was to throw in the towel. Well, let me jump to a different thinker and share some of the uh, summary that you see online, this time from Francis J. Beckwith, summarizing Thompson's argument on uh, fetal personhood, as they call it, in her 1971 article, which by 1986 had become, quote, the most widely printed essay in all of contemporary philosophy, according to her editor, William Parent. Thompson argued that even if the fetus is a fully human person with a right to life, this does not mean a woman must be forced to use her bodily organs to sustain its life. It is much the same, we are told, as the case in which one does not have the right to use another's kidneys if one's kidney has failed. Consequently, a pregnant woman's removal of a fetus from her body, even though it will probably result in its death, is no more immoral than an ordinary person's refusal to donate his or her kidney to another in need of one, even though this refusal will probably result in the death of the prospective recipient. Here's Thompson's illustration. You wake up in the morning and find yourself back-to-back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He had been found to have a fatal kidney ailment, and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you, and last night the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. The director of the hospital now tells you, look, we're sorry the Society of Music Lovers did this to you. We never would have permitted it had we known. But still, they did it, and the violinist is now plugged into you. To unplug you would be to kill him. But never mind, it's only for nine months. By then he will have recovered from his ailment and be safely unplugged from you. Is it morally incumbent on you to accede to the situation? No doubt it would be very nice of you if you did, a great kindness. But do you have to accede to it? What if it were not nine months, but nine years? Or still longer? What if the director of the hospital says, Tough luck, I agree, but now you've got to stay in bed with the violinist plugged into you for the rest of your life. Because remember this, all persons have a right to life, and violinists are persons. Granted, you have a right to decide what happens in and to your body, but a person's right to life outweighs your right to decide what happens in and to your body. So you cannot ever be unplugged from him. I imagine that you would regard this situation as outrageous. That is the beginning of Thompson's argument. She goes on to use other examples. Um, but let's just stick with the violinist for now, because that is where Kokel responded on his Stand to Reason website. I want to jump to the heart of his argument in a section called Parallels That Aren't Parallel. First, the violinist is artificially attached to the woman. A mother's unborn baby, however, is not surgically connected, nor was it ever attached to her in the same way. His argument is that a baby developing in the womb belongs there. His second distinction, abortion is not merely withholding treatment. It is actively taking another human being's life through poisoning or dismemberment. A more accurate parallel with abortion would be to crush the violinist or cut him to pieces before unplugging him. Third, it equates a stranger-stranger relationship with a mother-child relationship. The violinist suggests that a mother has no more responsibility for the welfare of her child than she has for a total stranger. Blood relationships are never based on choice, yet they entail moral obligations. This is why the courts prosecute negligent parents. If it is moral for a mother to deny her child the necessities of life through abortion before it is born, how can she be obligated to provide the same necessities after he's born? Remember, Thompson concedes that a fetus is a person from the moment of conception. If her argument works to justify abortion, it works just as well to justify killing any dependent child. After all, a two-year-old makes a much greater demand on a woman than a developing unborn. The most primal of those rules is the obligation of a mother to her helpless child. This is one of the reasons the public outcry against Susan Smith was so intense. Well, before I get into his Susan Smith comparison, I'll give you a quick heads up. First, this is where the lie is coming in. And second, 
I do find the argument that a mother has a special relationship, or at the very least, a different and distinct relationship to her unborn child, persuasive. It is the best argument available to the pro-life movement. And I'll get into uh, a couple, three weeks from now, the reason why I think the pro-life movement has failed themselves on this front. But for now, the Susan Smith analogy. Susan Smith shocked the nation with the murder of her children. This is still Kokel writing. She believed her two young boys were an obstacle to remarriage, so she placed them in her car, fastened their seatbelts, and drove them into the lake. Smith's crime was especially obscene because she violated the most fundamental moral obligation of all, the responsibility a mother has for her own children. Yet, wouldn't Susan Smith be exonerated by Thompson's logic and also Eileen McDonough's? In the eyes of McDonough, these children were kidnappers, interlopers, trespassing on Smith's life, depriving her of liberty. Why not kill them? These boys were attacking her. It was self-defense. Last year, a couple in New York was arrested when authorities learned that they took a 10-day vacation to Florida and left their young children behind to fend for themselves. If McDonough and Thompson's arguments work, these parents should be released from jail because they bear no more obligation toward their own children than they do to strangers across town or burglars who break into their house. These children were invading their privacy, trespassing in their home, stealing their food. This argument is frightening for two reasons. First, it must reject the notion of parental responsibility in order to succeed. Second, in spite of that weakness, people in high places think it's compelling. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, writing in the North Carolina Law Review, has admitted that Roe v. Wade was deeply flawed and instead quoted the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in support of abortion. Women get pregnant, she argued. Men don't. Abortion gives women a shot at equality. She then cited Thompson for support. The responsibility a mother has toward her children supersedes any claim she has to personal liberty. If it doesn't, if Thompson's arguments succeed, then release Susan Smith. Release the deadbeat Florida tourists. If parenthood is an act of heroism, if mothers have no moral obligation to the children they bear, if child-rearing is a burden above and beyond the call of duty, then no child is safe, in the womb or out. It is specifically this issue of heroism that I intend to address when I return to the concept of adoption in a few weeks. But what we have is a leading thinker in the pro-life movement making the argument that bearing a child, and even bearing a child and giving it for adoption, cannot be viewed as heroic. In his mind, it's an obligation. So where's the lie? What am I so bent out of shape about? Well, it's simply this. The lie comes from the idea that Judith Jarvis Thompson would agree with the claim. This is a classic logical fallacy. Take an opinion that your opponent would never agree to and call it theirs and then attack them for it. And for people of the truth, we should expect more than that. His claim is that Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument in a defense for abortion would exonerate Susan Smith, would make it okay for her to kill her child. And the fundamental flaw is simply this. Thompson's argument is focused on the relationship of the woman as being, in essence, held hostage by the process of pregnancy. That if Thompson makes an argument that a woman does not have the right to the death of the child, only the right to choose not to be pregnant, that breaks down all of the complaints that I've just shared. And if Thompson makes these arguments clearly and emphatically, and Kokel presented her point of view without including that claim, well then, the question of intellectual integrity is certainly there. So what did Thompson actually say? I think this reading will reveal two things. First, how much intellectual ground did Thompson give up in acceding to the personhood of the fetus? Was her thought experiment engaging in a hypothetical? when her opponents seem to be attaching her hypothetical examples as if they were a manifesto of some sort. But second, and more to the point, what did Thompson say at the last three paragraphs of her work? Let's go there. My argument will be found unsatisfactory on two counts by many of those who want to regard abortion as morally permissible. First, while I do argue that abortion is not impermissible, I do not argue that it is always permissible. 
There may well be cases in which carrying a child to term requires only minimally decent Samaritanism of the mother as opposed to good Samaritanism. And this is a standard we must not fall below. I am inclined to think it a merit of my account, precisely that it does not give a general yes or a general no. It allows for and supports our sense, for example, that a sick and desperately frightened 14-year-old schoolgirl, pregnant due to rape, may of course choose abortion, and that any law which rules this out is an insane law. And it also allows for and supports our sense that in other cases, resort to abortion is even positively indecent. It would be indecent in the woman to request an abortion and an indecent of the doctor to perform it if she is in her seventh month and wants the abortion just to avoid the nuisance of postponing a trip abroad. The very fact that the arguments I have been drawing attention to treat all cases of abortion or even all cases of abortion in which the mother's life is not at stake as morally on par ought to have made them suspect from the outset. Secondly, while I am arguing for the permissibility of abortion in some cases, I am not arguing for the right to secure the death of the unborn child. It is easy to confuse these two things, in that up to a certain point in the life of the fetus, it is not able to survive outside the mother's body. Hence, removing it from her body guarantees its death. But they are importantly different. I have argued that you are not morally required to spend nine months in bed sustaining the life of that violinist. But to say this is by no means to say that if and when you unplug yourself, there is a miracle and he survives, that you then have the right to turn around and slit his throat. You may detach yourself, even if this costs him his life. You have no right to be guaranteed his death by some other means, if unplugging yourself does not kill him. There are some people who will feel dissatisfied by this feature of my argument. A woman may be utterly devastated by the thought of a child, a bit of herself, put out for adoption and never seen or heard of again. She may therefore want not merely that the child be detached from her, but more, that it die. Some opponents of abortion are inclined to regard this as beneath contempt, thereby showing their insensitivity to what is surely a powerful source of despair. All the same, I agree that the desire for the child's death is not one which anyone may gratify, should it turn out to be possible to detach the child alive. At this place, however, it should be remembered that we have only been pretending throughout that the fetus is a human being from the moment of conception. A very early abortion is surely not the killing of a person, and so is not dealt with by anything I have said here. Just to start with the last paragraph alone, how does Francis J. Beckwith, how does Greg Kokel come to the conclusion that Judith Jarvis Thompson has made an absolute blanket concession that a embryo is a person? She made a hypothetical conception and walked through some concepts of what, what this might mean if this, what this might mean if that. But how should we respect the intellectual acumen of anyone who is purporting to write a response to a famous commentary on abortion when they clearly haven't read the last paragraph of the work? Or did they read the last paragraph of the work and choose to dismiss it because it didn't serve the ends they were seeking and the arguments they were making? And how should we interpret that as anything other than some sort of lie? You may detach yourself even if this costs him his life. You have no right to be guaranteed his death by some other means if unplugging yourself does not kill him. Are we clear here? Does Judith Jarvis Thompson argue unmistakably that we do not have a right to secure the death of an unborn child through the process of abortion? That the only right being debated here is whether a woman can, against her will, be forced to carry a pregnancy to term? Can she be forced against her will to provide that sort of direct physical support, life support, literally, for someone that she does not want. You see, there are other options for Susan Smith. There are other options for any woman who bears a child. The difference uh, and the mistake that these you know, editorial writers make when they're looking at the arguments of, of Eileen McDonough and Judith Jarvis Thompson is they aren't recognizing the change in responsibility that occurs at the moment a child is born. When the child is no longer attached to the woman, when the moment of pregnancy is over, she is at this point no longer, quote-unquote, plugged into the violinist. 
And anyone who says that these particular thinkers, Thompson in particular, have said you still have a right to kill, have failed to read Thompson. So do we have someone with advanced degrees in the philosophy of religion and Christian apologetics who just isn't bright enough to understand what Thompson meant by her words? Do we have someone who's so caught up in the moment and so caught up in the response that he didn't care somewhat negligently about whether he was speaking accurately about her point of view when he attacked her point of view? Or are we dealing with somebody who's telling a lie, if not to others, at least to himself? Hi, this is Jason from the Atomic Trivia War 9000 here with your lightning round. What rap star named his dog White Boy and his 14-year-old protege Lil Bow Wow? That's Snoop Dogg. What comedy duo penned a book explaining culinary tricks like stabbing a fork in your eye? The answer? Penn and Teller. And who bid adieu to the NBA in 1999 without making good on his promise to strip naked in the final game? If you guessed Dennis Rodman, then you chose wisely. Join ATW9K here today and get lots more trivia questions. We'll see you there. A little bit after the Stand to Reason article was put out online, 2007, I believe, in this case, the Christian Research Journal published an article by Richard J. Pappard called Suffer the Violinist, Why the Pro-Abortion Argument from Bodily Autonomy Fails. This, again, we're not dealing with, you know, some high school essay. We're not dealing with, you know, a small town editorial editor who doesn't do his research and doesn't have his facts. The Christian Research Journal is published by an organization called the Christian Research Institute. And I can't help but be caught up in the idea that the word research is central to who they are. I'm not attacking this organization. I've seen numerous instances where they've done marvelous research. This article is not one of them. In fact, this, this article was the deciding point for me in whether I should subscribe to this magazine. I'd seen it a few times. I was familiar with the work. I'd read articles online that were published in the work. This one was the dividing line. This is where I changed my mind about whether to commit myself to any regular reading based on the quality of the research that was done here. It makes the same mistake, so I'll try to move swiftly through it. The bodily autonomy proponent argues that no human being, regardless of moral status, has the right to use the body of another human being against his or her will. The human fetus, then, does not have the right to use the body of his or her mother for sustenance or survival against her will. The mother who wishes to support her child by sustaining the pregnancy is performing a virtuous act, but one that she is not obliged to perform. If the violinist analogy holds, the pro-choice advocate can concede what pro-life advocates have been trying to prove, and abortion still would be morally permissible. Pro-life apologist Greg Kokel declared when he first heard this argument, it shook me up so much that I almost had to pull the car over. Thompson's analogy, as it was originally offered, was criticized roundly. Other scholars, however, recently have refined and defended her point of view. Here's his response. Accutane is a drug that is used to treat acne, but that causes severe fetal injury and birth defects. The FDA restrictions for um, this drug are so tight that before the medication can be dispensed, a woman of childbearing age must pledge to use two forms of contraception if she is sexually active. Prior to filling the prescription, she also must verify the types of contraception she is on and take two pregnancy tests, one administered by her doctor and one by a certified laboratory, both with negative results. She must use the most accurate tests available, never home pregnancy tests, to confirm that she is not pregnant. We accept these as reasonable restrictions on a woman's right to bodily autonomy in order to optimize the safety of her child. How then would we react to a pregnant patient who wishes to use Accutane therapy for acne despite her awareness that it causes severe fetal injury and birth defects? He makes a comparable argument about thalidomide, which was used um, as a morning sickness treatment until it was realized that that also caused severe birth defects. If the right of bodily autonomy is absolute, as it needs to be to defend the ultimate act of intentionally killing a human person, how could we fault the mother, in this case, if she chose to take these drugs? Which is worse, causing harm to a child or intentionally killing that same child? If a mother can kill a child because it is intruding on her bodily autonomy, then it is unreasonable to disallow her to harm the same child using the same reasoning. That's all I'll share from this article. Again, I found it profoundly unsatisfactory, but I will share my response to it. First off, it comes from a family of pro-life arguments that I refer to as their, their little lady. 
There, there, little lady, the man will take care of everything. So the problem is, it's not an either or, either bodily autonomy or maternal responsibility. You can't have neither, but I favor both, which you could have, but we don't. Why don't we? Well, part of the reason we don't, as I've said earlier in previous inappropriate conversations, if abortion is murder, then mom is the murderer. But if it's a choice, then bodily autonomy is a valid reason why it's a choice. The arguments against bodily autonomy hang on maternal responsibility, and they say that, well, the child is not a violinist, so it's a different relationship. It's not some stranger. But no one has the right to torture. I realize it's ironic that I'm making an argument toward political conservatives, including Christian political conservatives, that we don't have a right to torture, when in the United States of America, we probably spent a good 10 years, if not longer, trying to weasel around the definition of the word torture to make it possible for us to accept that we do have the right to do this. Well, let me make a morally consistent position. We do not have the right to torture. We don't have the right to torture prisoners, especially political prisoners, even if the information we extract from them, quote unquote, might save lives. So I'm going to reject the right to torture, that the sliding scale logic being used here, that to kill is very bad and to torture is less bad, therefore to torture is okay if to kill is okay, does not work. I can exercise my self-defense, but I can't exercise my self-defense by tying someone to a chair and electrocuting them for hours and hours and hours. I can exercise my self-defense by killing if I have to, but that if I have to doesn't give me the right to do all sorts of other heinous things under the heading of, well, I kind of had to. I didn't want to kill him. That was wrong, but I didn't mind putting him in the tub and throwing a toaster in there as long as he lived through the experience. That is not the pro-choice position, and anyone who characterized the pro-choice position in this way is probably lying. Thompson does not guarantee the right of someone to secure the death of the violinist, quite the opposite, as we've established. This is a false appeal to option. There is no choice in the mix here for a botched operation. You either save the violinist or you do not save him. But there's no option for saving him badly. Taking drugs, which will lead to fetal deformity, is an example of saving the child badly. And to make this argument even more uncomfortable... From a pro-life perspective, if a woman did accidentally or unwittingly take a drug that caused, not could cause, but in this case actually did cause, severe fetal deformity, what's the pro-life position? Save the child badly. Let it suffer for a few weeks or months and then die is viewed by some in the pro-life movement as a far preferable thing than killing mercifully. If we have a special moral obligation to our children that trumps bodily autonomy, why does the pro-life position insist that the woman is not responsible for the criminality of abortion? This argument doesn't work if she's just a victim. See, the argument that Greg Kokel was making was that Susan Smith is not just a victim. She's in jail and she belongs in jail because she's the murderer of her children. He has a completely different worldview about what to do with a pregnant woman who seeks abortion. What to do with a pregnant woman who seeks an abortion, has a small-town doctor tell her no, goes to a different town, seeks abortion again, finds out no one there will perform them, and goes to a different town and finds a doctor who will, but she can't afford his fee, and goes to a different doctor who has a more reliable fee. At what point is this woman's not actions not premeditated if you believe that abortion is murder? The view of pregnancy as a disability, which this uh, article in the Christian Research Journal, uh, Journal rails against, this is not Thompson's argument. This is not some misinformation. It's quoting our society. Insurance calls pregnancy a disability. We take pregnant women to the doctor and to hospitals in most cases, especially at the time to deliver. Companies pay lost work benefits to new mothers through health insurance, not family leave. Sometimes it's a combination of health insurance and family leave, but the health insurance always comes first. Pregnancy is viewed as a health issue. There is an argument, of course, that most pregnancies are healthy. What then about the deformed children and the problem pregnancy? It's too easy for us to dismiss those situations and say, we don't have to make that decision. We'll leave it up to God. We're making plenty of other decisions that we're not willing to leave up to God or to reason. Let me close this by going back to Poupard's article. I respect the work of these thinkers. 
I can't help but to conclude, however, that the extent that they need to stretch reality to justify their support of abortion rights indicates a clear weakness in their position. In the end, their arguments, though thoughtful, fail to overturn the truth that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human offspring. Let's turn those words on its head just a little bit. How well do you respect the thoughts of other thinkers if you do not quote them accurately, if you misrepresent their point of view, if you leave out key points they make that undermine the position you're trying to argue? In the end, the argument here that fails, the argument that doesn't overturn the truth, is the argument being made by these opponents. These opponents are telling little white lies, little pieces of misinformation, perhaps innocent intellectual confusion. But that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility of deciding what we're going to do about it. Perhaps we should start, as I've suggested from the very beginning of this program, at the very beginning of the first inappropriate conversation, maybe we should start disqualifying people from having a voice in the public square. Maybe it's not unreasonable for a news show, regardless how objective it succeeds in being, like a nightline, for example, to say, no, I am not going to invite this person onto my program to give their point of view, to provide balance to the argument, because they're intellectually unsound. I can document it. I can prove it, probably even in a court of law. Here's what Thompson said. Here's what this person said she said. Clearly, this person misrepresented her argument. This person who's engaging in misinformation, whether willful and intentional or through an extreme form of negligence, does not deserve an equal seat at the table when it comes to making decisions. Here's the problem, though. Will there be a conservative, political, Christian voice left to put at the table? I don't believe that the conservative Christian point of view is completely bankrupt. I just believe that it's been presented to us in a completely bankrupt way. I do wonder if I'm being too harsh. There are thinkers and there are thinkers, right? And some people, regardless of how degreed they are, regardless of their passion for the issue, simply get it wrong. There are other thinkers who share the same pro-life worldview who don't always get it wrong. I'd like to quote um, from Oz Ganes and introduce him as perhaps the most dangerous different drummer I've ever mentioned. Dangerous because in a lot of ways, he represents some things that I'm not on board with at all. This is someone, as a different drummer, who has a tremendous opportunity to disappoint me. I'll get into why in just a moment. But first, Ganesh, quoting in a, a book called Time for Truth, published in 2000 by Baker Books, um, makes a lot of references to another Christian intellectual named Jay Budzhevsky, and talks about the importance of truth. Because I don't want anyone to believe that I'm a lone Christian railing here in favor of the concept of truth. No, I'm sitting right there with people in the religious right saying truth is important, truth is real, truth matters. I just wonder if sometimes there's a much less, <laughs> there's a much smaller subset of us who take it seriously. Here's the writings of Ganes, and in some cases, quotations to Budzhevsky. Perhaps the simplest and most helpful diagnosis of the degeneration toward living the lie is philosopher J. Budzhevsky's description of the seven degrees of descent on the downward path toward dishonesty. The first step is simply sin. We lie because we have done wrong. Lying becomes the secondary utility sin in the service of some primary sin. The second step is self-protection. As Budzhevsky writes, lies are weaklings. They need bodyguards. Each new protective ring of lies breeds its own protective ring until the layer is smothered in layers of lies and lying. The third step down is habituation. Lies repeated become habits, and habits repeated become character. Before too long, a single lie becomes a settled way of lying, and we cross the border between lying and becoming a liar. The fourth step down is self-deception. The more we lie, the more we lose hold of the truth, and the more we succumb to believing our own lies. Sincerity and self-deception then reinforce each other. The fifth step down is rationalization. Believing our own lies, we give explanations other than the real reasons for all we do. Then we blame our weak grasp of the truth on the weakness of truth itself. 
so that, for example, postmodernism becomes a gigantic rationalization for our contemporary lack of truthfulness. The sixth step is technique. The more accomplished we are as liars, the more lying becomes our craft. Hitler's technique of the big lie was simply a tactic that a big falsehood repeated over and over is more effective than a small one. Statistics, as in lies, damned lies, and statistics, are an obvious modern equivalent. The seventh and bottommost stare is that morality turns upside down. As Budzhevsky observes, the moment lying is accepted instead of condemned, it has to be required. If it is just another way to win, then in refusing to lie for the cause or the company, you aren't doing your job. Thus, living the lie replaces living in truth. And in the moral murkiness, truth and freedom are lost, and evil is born. So I've complained. I've complained throughout this show about Christians who lie. Where would I put them on this sliding scale? I think the fourth step down, self-deception. There's two reasons I think that. First, I don't believe these people believe they're lying. I think they've gone so far down the path of doing the convenient lying that they have now become convinced that what they're saying is true, that what they're saying is logically and intellectually and above all, morally defensible. I don't think they've hit the fifth step down yet, though, because I don't think that these people believe there is a weakness of truth itself. It's a standard religious right trope that truth is not relative. I just wish more of them would walk the talk. So who is Oz Guinness? Funny thing is, I might need to pronounce his name Guinness to do it properly. I've actually heard it said both ways, but more often than not, the first way. Guinness is the great-great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer. He was born in China as a British citizen and spent uh, much of the 60s aligned with Labrie, the uh, movement started by Francis Schaeffer. I believe Francis Schaeffer has done a great deal of damage to the American public, um, starting culture wars, believing in culture wars, advocating and even offering techniques in culture wars has been horrifically destructive and in many ways anti-Christian. And what I'm about to argue here, using the words of Ganesh, maybe even against himself, anti-intellectual. In 1984, Ganesh came to the United States where he was first a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and then a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. He was later the lead drafter of the Williamsburg Charter. He is known now as the founder of the Trinity Forum, which started in 1991 with another senior fellow they had met in these other think tanks. He has written or edited more than 25 books, and he still lives in the United States. I read one biography at a Christian website who refers to Ganes as having a deep concern to bridge the chasm between the academic knowledge and popular knowledge, taking things that are academically important and making them intelligible and practicable to a wider audience, especially as they concern matters of public policy. The reason I worry, the reason I'm a little concerned that this is a different drummer that could blow up in my face, is that his point of view is that it's not important necessarily, or not as important, for individual Christian believers to find their intellectual footing in their piety, in their relationship with God, it is more important to move the culture by engaging with Christian leaders, powerful men, who will make the right decisions on behalf of us all. That, taken to its extreme, is extremely dangerous. And we've seen instances just in the last couple of decades where that has been really, in my mind, the source of some of the greatest problems, not just in America today, but in the world today. That thought process, that Schaeferism, has a lot to do with what's going wrong in Uganda today when it comes to basic human rights and the threat to imprison or uh, murder people based upon their sexual orientation. So let me put all that out as a disclaimer, because I believe that if I have to, I'll separate Osganes, the person, and the you know, think tank you know, professional from Osganes, the writer. And I want to refer at length to one of his books. This is a book that, frankly, ought to just be the different drummer. Um, I don't want to go to that route. I'm willing to name a fictional person. I'm not willing to name an inanimate object or a work. But the work I'm going to refer to exclusively from this point on is Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. 
Ganesh wrote this book in 1994, but key elements of this book were part of his lectures, even going back a decade sooner. So in some ways, this was a crucial, pivotal work for him. And I can tell you, as a reader and as a Christian thinker, it was a crucial, pivotal work for me. One of the biggest issues facing the church today, and because of the influence that the church has over American politics, one of the biggest issues facing America today is Christian anti-intellectualism. And Ganesh put all of his cards on the table, laid his reputation on the line to attack that in the book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. So I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to quote liberally several pages, maybe a dozen. The quote fest I always try to avoid when I get a key author in as a different drummer, I'm just not going to avoid it at all. I'm going to go there. So everything you hear after the break will be the words of Oz Ganesh. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the library, Books You Should Read is coming back to simplysyndicated.com, this time with a little bit of a different approach, but still fueled by you. So send in your reviews of books you love or even books you don't love. We'd like to hear them all. Meanwhile, I'll be hosting every week. My name is Kennedy, and I'll be talking to you very soon. Evangelical anti-intellectualism is both a scandal and a sin, an offense and a stumbling block that needlessly hinders serious people from considering the Christian faith. It is a refusal, contrary to the first of Jesus' two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with our minds. I was reading an article in the New York Review of Books by John Scharr, professor of political science at the University of Santa Cruz. The year, 1976, had been called the year of the evangelical. But Scharr argued otherwise. He stated that evangelicals would have no lasting influence because the old lessons had not been learned. Evangelicals still had no Christian mind. What Americans were seeing in 1976, Schar claimed, was a revival in evangelicalism, but it was not the slightest possibility that it could lead to a national renaissance. He concluded, Nor is there much likelihood that leaders of evangelical opinion will develop any significant new vision of public life and policy. The brute fact remains that this country, which has produced more Protestant believers than any other, has also produced fewer powerful Protestant theologians and theological social theorists than any other major Protestant country. The evangelical leaders are not equipped intellectually to think through the complex social issues of the times and offer genuinely new and promising solutions to them. Without a genuinely critical position, resting on Christian foundations and directed by a coherent theological vision that can deal with modern science and technology and the reality of foreign cultures, it is very likely that the evangelical voice in politics today will once again confuse the Christian faith with the American flag. Here are a list of strategic errors evangelicals have made repeatedly in recent public initiatives. First, evangelicals have concentrated their power in the peripheries of modern society rather than the center. Second, evangelicals have relied on populist strengths and rhetoric rather than addressing the gatekeepers. Third, Evangelicals have sought to change society through politics rather than through changing the culture. Not only does this recent position reverse the traditional emphasis on transforming society through changing individuals, but it comes at a time when many people acknowledge that politics cannot touch many of the deepest crises in society. These crises are now termed cultural and pre-political. Fourth, evangelicals have chosen to rely on the rhetoric of protest, pronouncement, and picketing rather than persuasion. Winning the hearts and minds is an urgent priority. It's one being ignored. In historian Martin E. Marty's description, America is, religiously speaking, a nation of behaviors rather than believers. Truth is commonly regarded as divisive. Clarity of distinctions is not prized. And serious thinking is reckoned unnecessary. Style has become an end in itself. No longer expressive of substance or inner character, style is all that matters now. Wear something and walk down the street and you don't just say, I like this, you say, I'm like this. Christian discourse is beginning to take on some of the characteristics of tabloid and talk show truth. 
A current example is the carefully contrived, skillfully engineered myth that Christians are a small, persecuted minority victimized by liberal elites. Further, we have our own Christian forms of truth as power play, whereas liberals, who are often a minority, tend to resort to the courts in the absence of persuasion. Christian conservatives, who are often a majority, tend to resort to crusades. Persuasion, based on truth, is irrelevant. No hostage-taken power play communication is now the name of the game. Listen to the rhetoric of many of the shows on Christian Talk Radio, and you'll find that enemy bashing is common. Let me add here a further consequence. The growing degradation of Christian thinking into speculation, heresy, blasphemy, and just plain weirdness. A horror of great darkness is welling up in our own house. This is the only the beginning of the degradation of evangelical thinking that is coming, unless we experience reformation. It is certain that the community of faith in America that identifies itself as evangelical has been out of its mind for 200 years. My focus here is not on thinking, but thinking Christianly. Because of the deep confusion over what is meant, some negative statements must precede the positive. First, thinking Christianly is not thinking by Christians. Second, thinking Christianly is not simply thinking about Christian topics. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And third, thinking Christianly should not be confused with adopting a Christian line on every issue. Expressed positively, thinking Christianly is thinking by Christians about anything and everything in a consistently Christian way, in a manner that is shaped, directed, and restrained by the truth of God's Word and God's Spirit. There is a misconception that concerns the idea that thinking Christianly is a form of uniformity. In other words, that if we all think Christianly, we will all think the same way. The result is the fallacy of particularism, the uniformity of a particularly Christian correct way of thinking. One form of particularism stems from a false desire for uniformity in the realm of ideas. Even as Christians, we are prone toward turning faith in God into a system of thought about God, and that finally reduces even Christ to being a mere part of a system of ideas. Instead of Christ judging our human ideas, the name of Christ is made to justify our human ideas, including ancient and modern crusades and inquisitions in his name. The other, more common form of particularism stems from a false desire for uniformity in the realm of practice. The fallacy that if we all think Christianly, then we will all behave the same way. Applying the idea of uniformity is disastrous because it leads inevitably to legalism and judgmentalism. The fallacy of particularism stems from the fact that God has not spoken definitively to us about everything. Obviously, he did not intend to. Thus, if it is an error for some Christians to make relative what God has made absolute, it is equally an error for others to make absolute what God has left relative. Speaking as Greg here, the way I've heard that said before is that it is a sin to put a question mark where God has left a period, but it's equally a sin for someone to place a period where God has left a comma. There is no one form of Christian politics any more than there is one Christian form of poetry, Ganesh says. Again, Many ways are definitely not Christian, but no one way alone is. Thinking Christianly is distorted, not only by those who do not take it seriously, but also by those who take it seriously, but in the wrong direction. This actually, speaking as Greg, is the place where I'm most concerned about Guinness. I think that one of the people who's taken Christian thought in the wrong direction is Francis Schaeffer. Now, whether his work in the 1970s in particular was misconstrued and perverted after the fact and against his will, or whether he had a very human solution to a problem and he presumed to place theological importance on those human ideas, it has nevertheless done great damage. Finally, let me conclude with one last quote, one last piece of a paragraph from the book Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, Why Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. One of the greatest sadnesses of thinking evangelical is knowing that thousands who have left and are still leaving evangelicalism do so because evangelicals do not think. 
It was not always so. Well, that's a heck of a rant. And believe it or not, I've held back. My anger on this issue is greater than I usually show. The bottom line is, if we are not people of the truth, then we as Christians should be called out as people who do not have our facts straight. It is very easy to find those in the religious right who are quick to dispute facts from scientific thought, from popular culture. It's about time the fact checkers gave those Christian thinkers the dignity of returning the favor. Thanks for listening.